Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. How's it going up there? Things are all right. Things are all right. A little rocky. We lost Connor for a moment. You know, well, we lost Connor. So we're kind of going through that moment at this moment, at this time. He's not dead or anything. He's moving back to Colorado to be around family. He's dead to me. <laughs> well, he's not dead to us. He's moving back to Colorado, I guess, to be near family and friends and a support system and that sort of thing. Um, so we're kind of looking around for a couple people for part-time help. So hopefully a couple of good applicants will come in the next week or two or three. Yeah, kind of looking at that right now. But man, other things are happening too. There's people all over the country now just going, oh God, I wish I lived by there. Like, that'd be their dream job. <laughs> well, I don't know. Dream jobs are, you know, dreams are dreams. So sometimes you wake up screaming. Um, and that, that happens all the time. But other other things have been going on too. We got a, um, a sighting this past weekend at one of the locations, the Blueberry Bog that we work all the time. So there was a possible sighting out there. It wasn't the clearest sighting in the world, but um, the, the guy who got it, I trust completely. Um, I went out there two days later. Oh, well, there's a little bit more than the sighting. They, they got knocks. Um, they also had a loud uh, shriek that actually shook their body so hard. Um, it, they, it scared the willies out of them. They have no more willies left because they actually got up and left in the middle of the night. They left all their camping gear, their, their, the tents, they had photography gear. Like they left a couple thousand dollars of camera gears, like lenses and bodies and stuff out there because whatever this was that shrieked at them from close range scared the heck out of them and they got out. And then they, when they got, when they went back the next day to retrieve their stuff, as they were leaving, they got more power knocks from the woods. So that that was going on. So I went out there on Tuesday night and hung out until about midnight or something like that. Actually, I brought Kelly Lemieux, um, you know, the bass player from uh, Buck Cherry. Yeah, yeah. He was a guest on our podcast. He's a Bigfooter in his own right. Um, he loves the subject, at least. So I brought him out, and he was super funny. He said some great things. Um, yeah, but we heard a shriek. We got another shriek. It wasn't as long in duration as the one the witness reported, according to the witness, but um, I sent it to um, Monagahela and he says, well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Very promising. So yeah, yeah, just a little bit of stuff going on. I put a long duration recorder out there. So I got to go up either tonight or tomorrow to go retrieve it because apparently we're going to get a ton of rain this weekend that might bring snow. And I don't want to leave an LDR out there until, you know, next July when I can access the location again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, lots of stuff is going on as usual, as it always is, I suppose. But um, none of that really compares to what we have going today. We have another member of Bigfoot royalty with us today. Um, and it's not just because of the work this person has done, but also it's literally in her genes, you know. Um, today, our guest on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo is, is none other than Laura Krantz. 
um, of who is, uh, we'll get into this in a minute with Laura, but she's basically, if I have this correctly, uh, Grover Krantz's great niece. Um, but let, let's bring her in and she can tell us a little bit about that and her discovery process, finding out that she is royalty. Laura, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Yeah, we saw you five years ago this week at the 50th anniversary. Yeah, that's about right. Um, it was cold, if I remember correctly, and raining a lot. Well, Northern California has that sort of charm, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think people were trying to go out to the the site where the Patterson-Gimlin film had been shot and could not get out there because it was such a soggy mess. So we were stuck at the bar instead. It's very sad. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it, I did get out there five years ago. See, now, just so the audience knows, we record these things beforehand so we can edit out all the stupid things we say. Um, but uh, uh, today is actually um, October 18th, so two days shy of the anniversary of the Patterson-Gimlin film. But also equally important, today is Bob Gimlin's birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, Bob. Happy birthday to Bob, even though this will be aired after it's his birthday. So he's 91 years old today. Um, and of course, what a great birthday present to see a Sasquatch that ruined half your life afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> More than half his life. He's 90. Oh yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that, um, I did get out to the um, Patterson Gimlin film site um, that on that 50, not, not actually on the 50th cause I had a job obligation speaking at the event. Um, but the day before, so it was manageable, but it, I did get out there. It was kind of neat. Um, in fact, I even flipped back in the pages there and then looked at it because, um, you know, there's that guest book that they have out at the Patterson-Gimlin film site. I was at the site a few weeks ago and I flipped through and I, I saw that and I, I kind of giggled to myself thinking about the weekend and everything. Um, but one of the highlights of that weekend for me, uh, of course, was meeting you, Laura, because like I say, I do view you as kind of Bigfoot royalty being related to Dr. Krantz and all. One of the things that shocked me when I spoke to you at that event is that you weren't even aware of it until kind of recently before that. How did all that come about? Yeah, I didn't have a clue. So um, he was my grandfather's cousin. So we weren't quite, he wasn't quite my great uncle. I think it's like first cousin twice removed or second cousin once removed. I've never quite understood how that family tree thing works very well. So um, if you have any insights, please let me know. But regardless, I had never heard of him. And I was living in Washington, D.C. I was working for National Public Radio at the time and was flipping through the Washington Post, sort of seeing what the news was and what people were talking about. And there was this huge article in the arts section about a guy named Grover Krantz, and he had donated his bones and the bones of his three Irish wolfhounds to the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. And... This probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of attention, except that they were about to put his bones and Clyde, Clyde was his favorite dog, they were about to put them on display as part of an exhibit on forensic anthropology. So there's these huge pictures of Grover and his dog right next to the picture of Grover's skeleton and the dog's skeleton, uh, and those were mounted in the same way to, as to match the photograph. So the dog's back on, you know, it's on its hind legs with its paws up on Grover's shoulder, and it looks like it's setting up for like this one last sloppy face lick. It was very cute. It is an adorable picture, actually. It is. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. A Bigfooter took that, actually. From what I understand, and I couldn't, correct me if I'm wrong, audience, but from what I understand, Rick Knoll is the photographer of that particular photograph. He was a Bigfooter in his own right. Very, very interesting stuff. And I love the fact that they reconstituted the skeletons of both of them in this everlasting like love hug lick thing. I think it's so cool. I was going to say, we, we're, we like to teach people on this show, and he was your 
first cousin twice removed. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I'll try to remember that. How did you figure that out? Google. <laughs> Let me Google that for you. Um, so anyway, this article, I'm reading this. I just, you know, I'm, I get kind of intrigued. I start to read it. And I read about this guy who is a tenured professor or was a tenured professor of anthropology at Washington State. He had um, been very sort of involved in these big debates about human evolution and human migration patterns. And he had also donated his body to the Tennessee body farm so they could do forensic analysis. Or I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this, but essentially what it is, is they put corpses out in exposed areas and, you know, like in a pond or in a trunk of a car or out in the hot sun and they look at the rate of decay and the types of little critters and bacteria that show up, and it helps them understand what happens in different scenarios. And that information can be used in like trying to solve mysteries and crimes. Um, so, you know, Grover, scientists till the very last here. And then there's this throwaway paragraph at the very end where they say that he was known for driving around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and a rifle searching for Sasquatch. And I was kind of like, who the hell is this guy? Like, it's just sort of one strange thing after another. And his family was from Salt Lake City, or he was from Salt Lake City, which is where my dad's family was from. So I asked my dad, who didn't know for sure, but he checked with my grandfather, who was like, yeah, he was my cousin. He used to show up at the family picnic with calipers and measure people's heads. <laughs> I know. The scientist, even when he was a kid, basically, because my grandfather was quite a bit older. And uh, another fun story is my grandfather was in the first medical school class at the University of Utah, and he knew that Grover was really interested in human anatomy and was probably, a, I would guess he was about 10 years younger at the time. And my grandfather smuggled out the skeleton of a human hand for Grover to examine and study. Um, I don't think you're allowed to do that. Apologies to the family for whom that skeletal hand belonged if you talk about talk about lending a hand, though. <laughs> oh, that's such a good joke! I can't believe I haven't used that. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours. It's yours. We're friends, so you can have it. <laughs> you know, my family reunions sound like they used to be a lot of fun. They're not as much fun anymore. Well, now that Grover's gone, yeah. So, so you started plumbing into the the history of Grover and finding out the connection, and then probably started learning about the man. And I, I, I mean, I know a little bit about the man, and everything I hear is just pretty awesome. Um, what did you think as you were uncovering this peculiar, eccentric scientist's uh, life story? Well, he really was eccentric, but he was extremely well-loved. Um, first off, he had four wives, um, and I did have the opportunity to meet his fourth wife, Diane Horton, who is a lovely woman. She lives not far from me in Denver, Colorado, but she's just super, super nice. Um, and she sort of introduced me to... Uh, people who had known him either in a professional capacity or a personal capacity or had been his students and kind of helped me develop this network of people I could talk to about who Grover actually was. And people loved him. Like I, granted, I'm probably not going to get introduced to the people who didn't like him, but to a person, everyone said that he was, you know, inquisitive and curious and smart and, you know, like would listen to people and discuss all kinds of ideas with them. His grad students apparently adored him. He would have these events at his home and the students would come over and we, they would sit in the backyard and just talk about anything and everything over glasses of wine. And I just, 
I thought that was fantastic. I don't think I had a graduate teacher that would do that when I was in grad school. So it was neat that he was very interested in his students and wanted them to get the most out of their educations. Yeah, you know, really occurred when, when you were talking about the body farm in Tennessee. I mean, really, he was a teacher till the end as well. Not only just a scientist, but a teacher as well. He wanted people to learn every last drop they could from him. And part of that was after he had died. Um, I've heard just wonderful things. I, I also have met a couple of his students and they not one has said anything bad about him at all. They're all just glowing reviews. And I, I had an opportunity to speak out in um, uh, um, Pullman at the university where he used to teach. I, I talked about, I spoke about Bigfoot one night out there. And um, several staff members who knew Grover very well, who were still at the university, came to speak to me about Grover afterwards. Um, and I say it often on this podcast, not having had the chance to meet Grover is probably one of the largest regrets of my life. And it's nothing that it was my choice necessarily. Um, I guess I could have really pushed and tried to get a hold of him, but I just didn't, we never crossed paths before he passed away. Um, but I attribute much of where I am today or whatever I, whatever, whatever I am today, whatever this is, um, to Grover because it was his work and his uh, scientific exploration of this topic that made me realize it's not, not all just kooks and weirdos. There's actually cool science going on, and I'm, I'm just a science nerd. So it's because of Grover. There's one bad thing I have heard about Grover, chain smoker. Oh, yeah. Not a great habit. Doesn't tend to work out well. What, wasn't he married to somebody somebody noteworthy? Like I've, I've had in my head that he was he, he married somebody – Eve Einstein was the name. That's who I'm thinking of. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, there's some question as to what her actual relationship to Einstein was. Oh, okay. So so some possible uh, f fuzzy pedigree on that side then. Yeah, I don't remember all the details, but I do remember sort of looking her name up at one point. And there, I know that I'd read some things saying that people weren't entirely sure she was who she said she was. But again, like I have not done the research on this, so I can't make any claims one way or another on that. Not sure. No, yeah, okay. And now, and one of my favorite pictures, I think, uh, I think you've posted it at some point on the on the Wild Thing um, uh, Twitter account or something like that. Um, it was, of course, Grover wearing the brow ridges. Yes. Can you, I just can't even imagine any professor of mine putting that, <laughs> putting that sort of rubber onto your forehead and then going and walking around campus. He did not give a shit about what anyone thought about him. Like he just didn't, um, which is very admirable. Oh yeah. Yeah. And hard to do. Um, but let's, for our listeners who may not know, Grover was apparently, he's obviously very interested in human, um, uh, evolution or whatever. He, he said, well, what, why, why do some of our relatives and some of the extant apes have brow ridges? And so he did an experiment and the experiment was he made a, a fake brow ridge and he wore it. I heard he wore it pretty consistently for many, many months. I don't know if that, the facts behind that, this kind of might just be rumors, but there's, there are photographs of him out of there, out there wearing this uh, brow ridge. And I guess at the end of it all, because he had such a weird, well, not weird, but such a dry sense of humor about him. Um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Meldrum has shared with me that I guess his conclusions afterwards were it, it helped keep the hair out of the face. And he kind of laughed about it. <laughs> the sun out of the eyes too, a little bit. But yeah, I don't know that he found out anything for certain as to why that existed. <laughs> and another example of uh, Dr. Krantz's um, formidable sense of humor can be seen in one of those old documentaries from the 70s, uh, um, Mysterious Monsters, I think it was. I forget which one it was. But basically, he was talking about the Bosberg footprints. 
And um, he, we've all heard him say these things before, where he says, like, well, if these are not real, it took somebody with a Leonardo da Vinci level of intelligence who is far smarter than I am, and I don't think that person exists. And, you know, which is a profoundly, wonderfully arrogant thing to say. And, I, and, and that alone made me laugh. But if you watch the documentary, a smirk comes onto his face at the very end because he knew he was going to ruffle some feathers with such a, um, a cocky statement. And I thought, I think that's just hilarious. That's funny. I don't know if I ever saw the documentary. I heard the clip and I actually ended up using parts of it in the podcast, but I think I found it on a radio interview. Um, I don't think I saw the documentary. So that makes me laugh even harder that that he was just basically poking people. Yeah, yeah. He just could did not care. And I think that was so just splendid. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. So after uh, d- discovering a little bit of, about Dr. Krantz and, of course, your relationship to him, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but the next big thing you did was the Wild, the Wild Thing podcast, um, which is all about Sasquatches, more so than your, than your relation to Dr. Krantz. What was the um, the push? What was the interest there to make something about Sasquatches and start learning about the animals in- instead of your own um, your own lineage? So it's funny because I learned about him back in 2006, and at the time, I was like, "This is a great cocktail party story." Like, I have a relative in the Smithsonian. He went out looking for Bigfoot, and that was kind of the extent of it. I knew there was probably something more there, but I just really didn't have the time or the wherewithal to be able to pursue it. But then when I became a freelance journalist, I left NPR, um, and I started doing my own projects, um, I realized that this was sort of ripe. And this is about the time that podcasts really started taking off, maybe a couple years after Serial came out. And people were very fascinated by the, these ideas of these long narrative stories. I thought there's something here to be done. And what I wanted to do was use this family relationship and this this newfound cousin of mine to talk about Bigfoot, be, not only just as a as a creature, but also as a concept in society and how we think about Bigfoot. Because what I found is like everybody knows about Bigfoot. And everybody has an opinion about Bigfoot one way or another. And there is something about this that has really captured people's interest in a, in a way that I, there are very few things I think that are equally captivating. Uh, aliens, UFOs, things like that might fall into the same sort of category. Um, but I wanted to pursue it in the same way that Grover would have, which would have been through a lens of science. So that sort of narrowed the field for who I was going to be talking to and what kinds of information I was going to be including. And so that that really was the genesis for all of this is like, here's this man who is a man of science, but also a man of Bigfoot. Can you be both? Yes, Cliff and I both are. <laughs> So that that that's what made you do the Wild Thing um, podcast initially and start exploring the topic from that perspective. 
Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, let's look if big, let's say Bigfoot exists, where would it fit on the evolutionary tree? And I went to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and I talked to Dr. Ian Tattersall, who is a, um, a specialist in human evolution there. He does not think Bigfoot exists, but we talked about how many different hominid species have existed over the years and how many others might have existed, but we don't have the fossil record for and the fossil evidence for. And actually, one of the things that he told me, I had this, I had this thought where, I, you know, we've only recently begun to use DNA to discover these other hominid species. We've only had that technology and that tech technological capability as of recent. And how many bones and fossils have we collected over the, you know, hundreds of years that we've been doing archaeology and stored them somewhere? And what's the possibility that there might be something in that collection that is mismarked because we didn't have the right technology at the time? Um, and he said, who knows, but that is not of particular interest to scientists. You want to be the scientist who's out in the field discovering new things. You don't want to be the one digging through the musty closets and pulling out the dusty drawers and going back through stuff that's already been processed, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Well, I don't know. I see. I would disagree with Dr. Tattersall about that because it may not be as sexy as being the the, the person out in the field like Indiana Jones or something. But um, to bring up an example from paleoanthropology itself, um, a homo uh, Denisovan uh, mandible was discovered in, in a dusty museum drawer. Um, and of course, the species itself was discovered through DNA. They had a little part of a finger bone. They tested it thinking it was a Neanderthal, and it turns out it wasn't. Um, well, lo and behold, it's a new species. Well, they they, they discovered a, at least a partial, I think it might be a full mandible in a, in a museum drawer. And I, I believe they collected the specimen back in the 80s. And it had been, it'd been sitting around for a few decades. And upon a closer inspection, they go, oh, my God, look at this. We've, we actually had one, and we didn't even know it because they didn't have the differentiation. He may have been speaking in generalities too, saying in general, a lot of scientists would prefer to be out in the field and going back. Oh, sure. Well, like I said, it is sexier. But you know, what's funny too is a Tattersall. Um, I have several of Ian Tattersall's books and they, I find them to be actually really interesting and strong um, uh, arg arguments for Sasquatches being Australopithecines. Because uh, Tattersall's books are wonderful. I don't know if you've read any of them. Um, Masters of the Planet was the first one I read. Um, it's a nice overview of kind of accidental discoveries in human evolution in a lot of ways. Um, and there will be chapters on Sasquatches in one day, in one of, one of these books one day. Um, but when he does, he describes uh, physically and also, you know, speculative behaviorally um, what Australopithecines are. And I'm thinking, oh, well, we got a Sasquatch there, except they're big and they don't need to travel in huge troops. That's it. So, um, yeah, I have, I have a great deal of admiration for Tattersall, despite him being incorrect about Sasquatches being real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also just thought it was very generous of him to take the time to talk to me because I think, and probably the two of you have run into this as well, when you're trying to have conversations about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, with people who consider themselves to be serious academics and serious scientists, a lot of times you're, you may be dismissed entirely. Um, and this is... I think sometimes can be a problem in science. And I know that there are other scientists who have discovered this with other topics. Um, I'm thinking specifically, there's a, a professor at Harvard who is an astronomer by the name of Avi Loeb, who is certain that there are extraterrestrials out there, but he knows when he tries to have conversations with his peers about these things, he's often sort of 
dismissed. And he's like, but I'm asking a question and I'm trying to find out an answer. Uh, I am not, you know, insisting that they exist. I know we don't have the scientific proof or evidence for that, but it's still a worthwhile question. Um, and I think that that is probably sometimes a bit of a blind spot in science where an idea seems crazy, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask about it or consider the possibilities. Yeah, because, of course, asking a question is literally the first step of the scientific process. Correct. Yeah, literally the first step. So um, did you, what challenges did you run into um, while making the Wild Thing podcast? Um, I think, well, I did try to talk to a few scientists um, or reach out to a, a couple of institutions where people just wouldn't talk to me because I don't think they wanted to be lumped in with this, um, which, you know, too bad. So sad they missed out. Um, but I think probably the biggest challenge was trying to find people that I felt that I could trust what they were saying. Because there were a few times I got into conversations with people who seemed like they were pretty of, of, of sound mind and judgment and rational thought. And then they would say, you know, Bigfoot teleports. And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm in this conversation with someone who is talking about something that no biological creature on this planet can do. And I'm not saying teleportation can't exist, but I have not ever read or come across any scientific studies or met any scientists who back that up. And so I have trouble buying that as a uh, philosophy or as a hypothesis for how Bigfoot works. Yeah. Yeah. Did you run a, um, what, 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 I know you weren't seeking out people who believe in paranormal explanations for Bigfoot, um, but you sounds like you ran across a fair number of them. Um, but it, it was certainly in the minority. In fact, I would even say perhaps even outliers. I want to be clear, not outright liars. I'm saying outliers, like a statistical term. Exactly. No, I know what you meant, what you mean. Um, yeah, I would say that they were very much in the minority, especially because the people I was reaching out to via the contacts I made tended to be more in the, the science-minded, rational, the laws of physics and biology apply to this creature as much as it does to anything else on the planet. Um, but it's just every now and then you'd come across someone like that. And I know Grover ran into this problem too. His wife, Diane, um, told me a few times that he would sort of get stuck in these conversations with people because initially they had presented some sort of piece of information that he found very compelling. Um, but then on further conversation with them, he realized that, you know, there were all these other things that they were saying that were not scientific or rational or accurate. And, but he, he didn't want to be rude and just sort of blow them off. So I think he spent some time in conversations that he did not necessarily want to spend time in. Well, yeah, I think he was just, uh, he, he was nicely rude in a blanket statement in his, uh, in his book, uh, um, where he just referred to them all as the lunatic fringe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But never to their faces, apparently. No, no, just as a blanket term. And I'm sure most people who are belong to that camp and read the book probably don't even think it, it, it Oh, he wasn't talking about me. And one of those things. <laughs> so the reception of Wild Thing was great. Um, every, everybody seemed to really enjoy it. I think he did a fantastic job. And, and from, your, from your side of the microphone, I'm sure it looked like a success as well, right? Yeah, I wasn't really sure what would happen. Uh, you know, I was fairly unknown. I was putting this podcast out um, in a world where there were an, an increasing number of podcasts, and I just wasn't sure what would happen. But I, it got very good reception. It got um, you know some really critical, good good reviews from 
big media organizations, including, you know, like the Atlantic and the LA Times and the Seattle Times and a few others. So, you know, it got, that helped get the word out about it. And then, then I started to hear from parents who were listening with their kids, which I had never even considered kids as part of the audience. It just hadn't even crossed my mind. So I probably would have cut the swearing out had I known that. And then uh, I would hear from teachers who were using elements of it in their classrooms to talk about, you know, evolution and DNA analysis and the scientific method and, you know, the psychology of belief and things like that. And at that point, I was like, oh, well, maybe there's something to be done here for like a middle grade level for kids. And a book seemed like it might be a good fit because, you know, it's something they can hold in their hands. Uh, they don't necessarily have to have the technology in order to be to to listen to it. Um, they can keep flipping back through it. It's available in libraries, um, and that it just seemed like a really good fit. And so that's sort of how the genesis for the book got started. How many downloads have you gotten on your podcast? On well, on season one, so season two and season three are on completely different topics. Um, yeah, the Bigfoot was the first one. My guess is probably around two to three million. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I would have to go back and do addition to, in order to figure that out. And I'm, I don't feel like using a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Where did, um, did the success continue with at that level with uh, season two and three when you were no longer talking specifically about Sasquatches? The success for season two was still pretty high. And the season two was about the search for extraterrestrial life from sort of the Roswell UFO crowd, um, the crash in the desert in 1947. Was it a UFO? Was it uh, secret Cold War technology? All the way over to what the um, SETI scientists, this is people like Jill Tarter and Dr. Frank Drake, who recently passed away, were doing. Uh, and then what NASA is doing in searching for exoplanets where there might be life. Um, that one did very well. And then the third one, there's been a little bit of a fall off, partially, I think, because of the topic, which is about nuclear a nuclear accident that happened near where I grew up. And I wanted to explore that. But also because, as you guys probably well know, the podcast field has become incredibly crowded and discovery is a little bit harder than it used to be in getting the word out about, you know, the stuff you're working on. And because my shows are my up or my seasons are very highly produced. Uh, they take a long time because it's just me. I do the writing, reporting, the editing, the production, everything except the music. And so it takes me a long time to put them out. And by the time I put out another season, a lot of people have forgotten about me. But, you know, labor of love. Well, yeah, because and, and your podcast is a different beast than this one is for sure. I mean, for for this one, Bobo and I have a, a, a nice person to speak to or we just banter back and forth and talk. We shoot the poop, basically. And it's easy to do. We can pump one out once a week, Right. But um, but yours is is really more you know you picture like like a Nova documentary with all the intricacies and editing and mood things and you're it, it but it's an audio version it's it's like these it's like these I mean I don't mean to sounds I don't want to imply that it sounds old or anything but like you know like the 1960s BBC radio documentaries that they used to do like that's the feel of yours and it's just so well produced and good and um, it's a different thing than what Bobo and I do every week we couldn't we could never do it I couldn't do it you I don't want to say Bobo couldn't but I certainly couldn't do what you've done I don't know if I could do what you guys do either though like the cons the constantly coming up with topics and like keeping the conversation going like that e seems equally hard to me in some ways. 
I'm not even sure we can do that actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I was going to say we just uh, we got a guest coming up, James Fox, and talking about alien life. We got a screener on his new movie about alien life, though crashing Brazil, and that. I mean, I I don't see how people can deny that there's alien life. No. I don't see how they can either. I think for me, the big question is, is, you know, the universe is so big. Um, and that when you start thinking about distance and time and how far humanity has actually traveled, the odds of finding alien life and actually interacting with it seem extremely small to me. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the difference, uh, not the difference, but the thing that hangs us up is our ego is so big. How could we not have discovered something by now? <laughs> we haven't. We've been discovered. But we're not discovering, we're being, we, we were discovered. Always a possibility. The second season of Wild Thing that deals with this extraterrestrial idea, um, it was completely released, I believe, before the government kind of fessed up about UFOs being real. Oh, no, it came out after that. So I actually ended up talking to um, one of the fighter pilots who had been seeing these things when he was flying for the Navy. Uh, and I spoke to Harry Reid before he passed away, Senator Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader, who had managed to get the um, money in place for there to be a, a, the, the dark money that was in place for them to do the work on this stuff, um, the initial uh, ATIP money. But um, this is the, the stories that were coming out in 2017, like when the New York Times had those front page stories about how the Pentagon was researching UFOs. Um, that was that program. Did you uh, did, did you dig through the Podesta emails for stuff? Um, a little bit. I didn't get too into the weeds on it because it was one of those things that was kind of shifting constantly, and it was hard to know who was telling the truth and who was lying. Not lying, but um, you know, maybe not being completely straightforward. And there was a lot of backtracking and people saying, oh, I did this. And then, oh, well, maybe I actually only did this. And I just decided I didn't want to get in. It started to become somewhat political in a way. And I didn't want to wade into these sort of weird fights that were happening. So I kind of gave an overview of what the conversation was about and then moved on. I see. I see. Because yeah, one of the things I was, I, you know, I'm a Bigfoot guy, but that other weird stuff, I love it too, right? But um, I just don't have time for it because all my, all my weirdness is focused on Sasquatches. But um, someone told me that there was some stuff in the Podesta emails that were leaked by uh, WikiLeaks back before the prior elections or whatever. And so, oh, well, okay, well, WikiLeaks is searchable. Let's go find out. And sure enough, they're in there. So I invite anybody to go to WikiLeaks website and do a do a search for you know, uh, unidentified uh, aerial phenomenon or, you know, UFOs or whatever you want to call them. Weird stuff, man. Weird stuff. Yeah. I know Podesta had been involved and he wrote a foreword for a book about this stuff too. I can't remember which one. It's probably in my bookshelf back here. Um, so yeah, it is always interesting to see what names sort of crop up on these things. And you realize that even the people who seem like, you know, very serious government diplomat, important VIP types, even they have fascinations that they can't let go of. You saw James Fox's movie, The Phenomenon, and you still don't think there's anything to aliens discovering our planet? Well, I, I can't say no, because there's, you know, you can't prove a negative, as you well know. Um, but I don't necessarily, I, there's so many scientists and there's so many anim, amateur astronomers that I've talked to who say, look, I've been looking at the sky for decades and I have never seen anything that indicates that kind of intelligent alien life. I 
personally think there's always the chance that alien life showed up and visited this planet. You know, we've been around for what, 4.6 billion years, Earth has. There's always the chance that Earth, that uh, that aliens showed up at Earth around the 3.5 billion year mark and were like, whoa, this planet is a hot mess. Um, it can't breathe the atmosphere. It's it, volcanoes everywhere. Um, don't want to stay here giving it one star only because we can't give it zero. <laughs> Swipe left. Yeah, Google reviews can be brutal. <laughs> Is that in respect to your museum, Cliff? No, planet Earth, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, we got a one star, but we noted, we looked at who these people were, and they were on, apparently on a road trip giving every establishment they went in one star. Why? That's to give balance out the people that give Denny's five stars. I mean, Denny's, Denny's has a time and place, Bobo. 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> At 2.30 in the morning, it gets five stars. (laughs) And deserves every one of them, I will say. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Your book is now out. I'm I'm literally I'm staring at one as I say these words, The Search for Sasquatch um, by Laura Krantz here. Um, And it is, it's spectacular. It's great. Um, And, and, it's it, it's not going to change uh, the scientist's mind because it's not written for them. It's written for young people. So it, what it's going to do is change the future scientists' areas of interest. And I think that is probably one of the most important things you can do is plant seeds among young people um, to get their interest in this subject there so they can be the ones. They can be the Diane Fossies and the Jane Goodalls out there after academic acceptance of the species. Um, and, and it is a fantastic book. The, the art is great. It's written like right there, right there in the pocket for these young readers. I, although I, I, I do want to say that older readers um, will enjoy it as well. I, I just got this home last night, um, picked it up at the post office yesterday, and I was, was thumbing through it. I've read only one chapter so far, but I think this is going to be a slam dunk. I hope so. Thank you so much. Yeah, there are some big words, but you know, part of this was, you know, what I wanted was kids to look, kids get a lot of information these days. They get from social media, from the internet, from peers, um, from news sources. And there's so much information coming at them that I think there are some difficulty being able to parse fact from fiction and parse good information from bad information. And part of what I wanted to do with this was introduce some scientific literacy, some critical thinking, some understanding of like, what's a good source. And, but I I also wanted them to be able to explore this mystery of Sasquatch without someone saying, you know, that's dumb or, um, this, this is a ridiculous idea. You know, there, there's a reason that this concept appeals to us so much. And I want kids to be able to embrace that mystery and enjoy that mystery and think about it in a critical scientific way. So I'm hoping that it sort of walks that line between, um, actual like knowledge that will help them in many avenues in life and also the fun and the fascination and the mystery of Sasquatch. I, I think that 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 sentiment, as as I flip through the book, 
um, both earlier today and now as, as you're, as we're speaking, that sentiment is, is peppered throughout the book. I mean, literally, as you're saying this, here, here's a, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, if I don't have to pay royalties, I want to read a paragraph from the book real fast. Um, page seven in the introduction, the introduction is called nests because, um, I, it sounds like you went out to the woods with uh, Shane Corson, good friend of ours, been on the show before. And right here, this kind of says it all. I'm, the, you're quoting Shane here. When, when you say, we're not saying it's definitely Sasquatch, Shane said. We're saying we don't know what made these nests. They're unknown nests with unknown hair mixed in with the foliage and unknown animal behavior behind it. The goal is to get to the bottom of the mystery, unquote. That kind of says it all. I mean, I, I you still should buy the book, but that pretty much says it all right there. Um, <laughs> you gave away the whole thing. Spoiler alert. I know. Now no one needs to read it, of course. <laughs> Yeah, that this other, you know, 150 pages just filler, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good for starting fires out in the woods. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What did you think, by the way? You, so did you see the nest? Did you, what did you think of all that? I did see the nest. I saw them when they were pretty degraded, I think, because it had been three years by that point since discovery. Um, and even Shane said, you know, they, they are not at their, the height of their glory but they're weird. I mean, there's no question about that. You see these things, they look like bird's nests. They're on the ground. They're enormous. And it's really hard to imagine what would have built these things. Yeah. I mean, bears would be the other probable candidate, but the bear biologists they took out there say, well, this isn't known bear behavior. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, based on what I've seen in terms of photos of bear beds, it didn't look like bear beds I'd seen. So I don't know if you're aware, but, you know, they found a second nest site. Oh, no, I had not heard that. Yeah, one ridge over. In fact, uh, Shane and uh, Todd Hale seemed to have interrupted one of the animals making it um, because something giant took off. And I, I got to the spot about a week after or something. And we got footprints. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, super interesting. So it's kind of still going on. They're still in the area. So um, doing the research for The Search for Sasquatch, your new book, um, who else did you speak to that stands out in your mind that you can tell us about? Oh, I, I, I talked to a lot of people. Um, you know, I talked to Todd Disitel. Uh, I talked to Jeff Meldrum. Um, and I imagine you've probably had both of them on your show. or I know you've had Dr. Meldrum for sure. Yeah, we haven't had Todd on yet, but we will. Yeah, he's great. Um, and he, you know, he was saying, look, I'm 99.9% sure there's not Bigfoot out there, but I'm willing to consider the possibility. And I'm willing to work with people who have sober judgment and rational mind who approach this scientifically and see what we can find, which is, you know, that's all you can ask for. Yeah, that is something I admire about Todd is that even though he doesn't think Sasquatches are real, um, he's always willing to look. He hasn't stopped looking yet. And I, I think that's half of it, you know, because so many skeptics and scoftics, as we've nicknamed them, um, who just scoff at the topic, they don't they don't even look. And I think that's something that Dr. Krantz had a great deal of trouble with. Um, people not even willing to look at the evidence because Sasquatches aren't real because they can't be real. Done. Period. End of sentence. Nothing else needs to be known, which is ridiculous. Very unscientific. But. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would agree with that too. And I've heard that sentiment from in other fields as well. Um, and then in terms of other people I spoke with, you know, one of my favorite conversations with, was with John Mayanzinski, um, who uh, his story that he had from the Wind Rivers in Wyoming, you know, that just sort of sets the hair on the back of your neck standing straight up because it was just a 
it's a crazy story. So that one I actually included the, in the book. That was in the podcast, but it's also in the book. And that's one of those where you're like, man, he has no reason to make this up. He has no reason to lie. He's a pretty introverted, retiring fellow. Um, he's not a, a showboat. And he is someone who is extremely familiar with the environment and the ecosystem and the animals in it. Uh, and uh, yeah, to hear him tell that story and wonder what happened was really, really interesting. Yeah, you know, um, John's um, uh, retiring demeanor, it, it almost works against how great of a, well, it definitely does, how great of a man he is. Because he had, he was so integral in um, in protecting grizzly bears back when they were uh, on the brink of extinction and back in the 1970s. Did he tell you the bear bait story? Which one is that? Go ahead and tell one us. One where he made, he like made himself into bear bait. He went and like, they were having problems with grizzlies. He tells us much better than I will. So if you can ever get him to talk to you, you should do it. But they were having problems with grizzlies going after campsites. And the question was, are they going after the people or are they going after the food? And so John did an experiment where he went and laid down in a clearing there where there had been problems with bears. And he made sure there was no food sent, none of that. Lay there in his sleeping bag. He had a Colt 45 on him. And then he just waited. And this bear came up, Was it, it was one of the problem bears, he was told later, because someone was watching him. And the bear came up and like circled around him and came right up in front of him, like above his face. And bears, when they are smelling something, they will exhale forcefully and then inhale to get the scent of it. And this bear blows its you know nostrils right into his face and then inhales and then walks away. And I can't, I would have, Pardon my French, shit my pants. I probably would have just died right there on the spot if that had been me. Oh, yeah. I, I would have shit your pants. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So John kept his cool, goes back to headquarters, tells his boss what went on. And the boss said, that's great. One story is not scientific proof. We're going to have to do it again. <laughs> but yeah, no, John is John is great. And he's doing some amazing stuff right now, working on helping preserve... Um, indigenous knowledge of plant medicine and um, ethnobotany. Um, he learned Indian sign language when he was a kid because he lost his hearing for a short period of time um, at a reenactment of the Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. And someone shot off a rifle too close to him and he went partially deaf and he learned Indian sign language and now at least last time I talked to him, he'd been going around to various tribes and using Indian sign language to communicate with um, some of the elders in these indigenous communities to find out what they knew about plant medicines. Have you seen his truck, right? That beat up like a mini Toyota sort of truck. And the, the, um, the bumper sticker on the back says, a weed is a name for a plant that we haven't found the use for yet. Yeah, totally. Also, why don't they make trucks like that anymore? I don't know. We've kind of just because now all cars have to look like shoes. Apparently, <laughs> they do. But also, like I would love a truck, but I don't need a huge one. Like the way they used to make those little Toyotas, take one of those in a heartbeat. Anyway, I digress. It's all right. That's what this podcast is all about. We should have called it digressing with Cliff and Bobes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, so it looks like you spoke to Cindy Cadell as well, another scientist in the field. She's an anthropologist in Eastern Oregon. Um, what, what did you learn from her? So Cindy very kindly took me out on a Bigfoot expedition with her and Shane and Gunnar Monson, 
Um, and Cindy's daughter was there as well. And then I had brought a friend of mine along because I was going out in the woods with four people I didn't really know. And I figured if I ended up dead, I would need a witness. And she was just lovely. And she talked to me about the work that she had done with first the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. And I think she's doing stuff with the Olympic Project as well. I can't remember exactly. Um, it's been a while since I've spoken to her. But you know, she also talked about some of her sort of struggles she's had with this because she was telling me, and again, some of this knowledge is from when we spoke years ago, but she had not had the kind of experience with Sasquatch or Bigfoot that would convince her that it was 100% absolutely real. And because of that, I think she sometimes struggled and wondered why she was still going out in the woods and why she was still looking and maybe she should just give this up and, you know, stop risking her reputation or risking being a laughing stock or spending a lot of her emotional energy on this. And so that was, that was very interesting to talk to her about that and hear her perspective as someone who really thinks this creature is out there, but also knows that she doesn't have the kind of evidence that would convince the scientific community. And there's something to be said about the persistence that you see uh, that is seen in Bigfooters in general, because uh, Bobo and I have spoken about this at some length, because you can go out for a year or two years sometimes without hearing a noise or finding anything at all, but yet we're still out there. And when we do get that shriek or the the, the knock or you find a footprint, I guess that, that the dopamine rush at that point feeds it feeds you for the next year or two. Um, do you find that to be, it sounds like that's kind of what Cindy was talking about. Did you find that to be the case as well? Like those little things kind of keep you going? So, you know, I am not a professional Sasquatch seeker. Um, I was more interested, especially with the podcast and with the book and sort of talking about what the search is like, who the searchers are, what they are searching for. Um, I, you know, I really came at this from a journalistic perspective in trying to be a, a neutral arbiter of this and talk about what I was learning and the people I met. Um, so I don't think I felt the same highs and lows that the people who have really devoted a lot of time and energy um, and emotion to doing this. So, um, but yeah, I think that is what Cindy was talking about. I think that's, you know, I think Grover had a little bit of that too, because he also felt he'd never seen the kind of evidence that would stand up to scrutiny. And, you know, at one point he was giving a lecture. This was actually back in 1970, I want to say 78 or 79. He was talking in British Columbia and he said, I want this to be over. I want the mystery to be solved. Um, I'm, you know, I've got other things to do with my time. Uh, and yet here, there he was, you know, all the way up until when he passed away in 2001, 2002, still looking. So I imagine there was a lot of emotional push and pull tug of war that was going on there. Yeah. I imagine he had a very frustrating, uh, career, I guess, as far as like his Bigfoot interests go, because it certainly set him back um, academically with tenure and other things. And he even wrote a little bit about he's not a conspiracy guy, but if if I did get a lucrative offer at far at a far-flown university away from all Bigfoot habitat, he would be very suspicious of it. Um, I guess he's run into a lot of roadblocks along his way. And I know that Dr. Meldrum also has complained about some, or at least spoken to me about some of the um, difficulties with being interested in this sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the point I was making earlier where this is a question. And, you know, as long it, it's 
Grover and I think Dr. Meldrum have continued to do work in other parts of their field that is beneficial and useful. And I don't see what the problem is with having a question and wanting to pursue the answer to it, as long as it's, you know, if it's not hurting anyone, if it is not causing damage to the other work that you're doing, then why not? What's the, what's the issue there? Well, and, and you know, in some places, in some in some aspects, I would imagine, and uh, we probably ask, want to ask Jeff about this. But I would imagine ha- being interested in the Sasquatch subject and actually publishing on it would make your other work like better in some ways because you know that some, every, everyone's going to be looking and pulling apart what you say thread by thread to find some sort of uh, vulnerability. Like, look at this bad science he did, and and then point to the Bigfoot thing afterwards. You would have to make sure all your I's are dotted and T's are crossed if you're looking into Bigfoot, because uh, people are out to get you. Other academics who might be jealous or concerned or embarrassed or whatever, being associated with the university, like Idaho State University actually condones this sort of thing. Um, I imagine in some ways it probably makes Jeff a better scientist because of the care he has to take in everything he does. It's, it's like the the that saying what is a bad man, but a good man's teacher. Well, these people out there being jerks would make um, Dr. Meldrum be even more stringent in his scientific uh, methodologies and research because they, he knows somebody's trying to take him down. And if he's not, he's going to be taken down. Yeah. I'm sure that that has made him exceptionally cautious. Um, I also think modern life has made people exceptionally cautious because any misstep these days, it feels like you can get uh, taken to task for, but yeah, that, that in particular, um, yeah, I don't doubt that he is constantly, um, double checking I's and T's and making sure that his work is, uh, above excellence. Well, the book is, the book is out. It's, uh, the search for Sasquatch by Laura Krantz. Um, it says a wild thing book on the cover. Is this, does this mean we can look forward to reading more books from this age, for this age group from you? Yeah. So the second book will be based on the second season of the podcast, which again is about the search for extraterrestrial life, um, both, you know, the, the one celled and the big brained. Uh, and then the third book is a little more squishy at this point. It will be a, sort of based on the third season of the podcast, although I may focus a little bit less on the nuclear accident and focus more on things like mutations and superheroes and, you know, what, what um, atomic energy is and, and things like that. I could see that. Like a nuclear disaster doesn't make for good bedtime reading to young children. <laughs> no, not exactly. Here, kids, let's read about Chernobyl. <laughs> hey, kids. <laughs> Mr. Berkman's here. No, not again. I am pro-nuclear energy. I'm going on the record. Are you pro-nuclear accidents? No, but those are way cut. I mean, they're always going to be accidents, but the new, the new designs are so safe. And those old ones, yeah, those are... Not well designed, some of them, but the new ones, like uh, France hasn't had a problem yet. Nope. And the Navy hasn't. If you think about it, the U.S. Navy has been operating nuclear reactors for roughly 70 years at this point without an accident, which is impressive. It can be done. It just needs to be done. um, Maybe not by people who have a stake in making a lot of money on it. And it needs to be a little, it needs to be well-regulated. Right. I mean, but if, if, if global warming is, climate change is, is going to kill us all. It's like, I think we should, we could risk nuclear power. Yeah. I, I think that that is a very legitimate argument for why nuclear power is a good idea. Um, yeah. The one thing that I have like 
that has set me back on it recently is the Russians attacking that plant in Ukraine, Zaporizhna. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, that's not so good. I feel like nuclear power is safe. I feel like humans are not safe. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Infants should not have firearms in their crib. <laughs> and we are definitely the infants. You're alienating some listeners out in Texas, Cliff. <laughs> uh, that's true. I, I might be, yeah. Sorry, Texans. I love you. I, I own a firearm as well, but nonetheless. So, Laura, thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. Uh, the search for Sasquatch is out. Where can people get it? Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at barnesandnoble.com. You can find it in independent bookstores. If your independent bookstore is not carrying it, you can ask them to carry it. And then it should be in libraries. And also, if you enjoy the melodious sounds of my voice, I read the audiobook. So you can find that on Audible. Fantastic. And of course, the North American Bigfoot Center will be carrying it. We'll be putting that order in this week. And so give us another week to get it in. Um, I think everyone is going to love this book. And Christmas is coming and everybody wants to give something good to their children, um, a good gift for their children. And this is it. It's it's going to improve their reading um, reading ability. It's going to increase their reading comprehension. Um, they're going to be more learned about uh, Sasquatches and science in general. Um, science will save us all. And this book focuses very, very neatly on it. So fantastic. I'm super stoked to have this in my library and I cannot wait to start ordering them by large numbers for the North American Bigfoot Center to sell because people are always saying, what book should my kid read? So, well, this is it. This is going to be the book. I'm pretty stoked on it. So thank you, Laura. Yeah. Thanks for showing up, Laura. Yeah, of course. Good talking to you both. So, Bobes, Laura Krantz, great guest, right? I mean, she's she's obviously she works for NPR. She knows all about what what you know radio is and stuff. So she's uh, well spoken. She's articulate. She's smart. She's interested in cool subjects like Sasquatches and UFO. I mean, she's a fantastic guest, and it was really cool to have her on, Bobes. I, I agree. Yeah, I haven't seen the book yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I got I have a hardback right in front of me. Um, so I, I'm assuming it's going to come out in softback eventually too. But the hardback, people should get that because that's cool and more collectible. You know, how negligent were her parents? Like, how could she grow up not knowing that Grover Kranz was a relative? I mean, you know, I said earlier, like I was surprised to find out that you didn't. Uh, she didn't know, and that was my surprise because Grover has been such a um, an integral part of my own development. I figured everybody must know, but I, I keep forgetting that I live in a little weird world, like this tiny little Bigfoot world. Um, and I think Bigfooters in general kind of forget this, that we think our world is a lot larger than it is. Um, and it just isn't. It just isn't. Most people aren't as cool as us, you know? Very true. Excuse me. <laughs> are you, are you, do you have the hiccups, Bobes? A little bit. <laughs> How cute. A big thank you to Laura Crash for coming to join us. She's got the Wild Thing podcast and the Search for Sasquatch new book coming out. So check that stuff out. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. Hit like, hit share, tell your friends and family. Listen to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. And until next week, y'all keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 